Welcome to the No Picks After Dark podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante. Today, we have a very, very special guest coming to on the No Picks After Dark podcast. We have Councilman Ryan Dorsey from District 3. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Hey, I really appreciate it. You know, I always tell people, you know, I'm not a political reporter. I'm just the people's reporter. So I go out and whatever's happening during the time period, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go out and report it. And something that's very important near and dear to my heart is my district that I live in. And a lot of my podcast is about Baltimore City. So why not have the district the councilman come on and speak about it, okay? I'm so, always glad to be had. And I appreciate you giving time out your busy schedule to fit me in. I, I know that we've been working on this and we've rearranged this three or four times to get this happening, but we finally got it done. So thank you so much for taking time out your day. Hey, man, I'm glad we can do this. And before we start and everything, I just want to get, put a disclaimer out there for everybody who's listening in District 3 or wherever else they're living or listening. I have actually also invited two other, two other candidates that are running against Council, Councilman Dorsey. Uh, unfortunately, they have not um, replied to me at the time. And, you know, sometimes everybody has everything, a lot of things going on in their lives. So nothing against them, but uh, my D- DMs are wide open. My email is wide open if you want to reach out to me. So. You know, this is an open podcast. I'm not a political guy. So I want to put that disclaimer out there in the beginning, folks. All right. So Council Dorsey, Council, Councilman Dorsey, um, tell listeners about you. I mean, I have listeners all over the U.S. and whatnot. And give them a little, little bit of tidbit. Where are you from? Are you originally from Baltimore? Did you grow up here? Did you go to college here? Give everybody a little information about you first. Sure. Um, I live in Mayfield. Uh, it's the neighborhood. is the farthest south uh, neighborhood in my district. Um, I live right on the border of Mayfield and Bel Air Edison. Uh, until I was 13 years old, I lived in Bel Air Edison, just six blocks from where I am now. And when I was 13, we moved to where my parents still live, which is half a block from my house where I live now. So um, when I was 29, I bought a house uh, half a block from my parents. And uh, I'm 38 years old now. Um, I will be 39 before the beginning of the next term. And I went to grade school right here in my neighborhood at St. Francis of Assisi. It's a Catholic school. I went to the School for the Arts, the Baltimore School for the Arts for high school. Uh, I studied violin performance there. And I began college as a violin performance major at the Catholic University of America. And after two years there... Um, basically taking all of the music courses that I wanted to take and not many of the other academics, I decided that really wasn't the right path for me. And I moved back home. I really wanted to be back in Baltimore and, um, I wanted to look at another opportunity and I was lucky. I was fortunate that I was accepted into the Peabody Conservatory, uh, as a composition major. So I finished my degree in music composition, uh, at the Peabody Conservatory. Um, Along the way, uh, during that time, I also um, realized that I have alcoholism and I got sober at 21 years old. Um, I'm really thankful for the 17 years of sobriety that I have today. Um, And I worked um, uh, for a long time in my family's business, selling and installing audio uh, video systems home theater and things like that, all around the Baltimore metropolitan area. Um, But I've also held other jobs uh, working in restaurants, 
um, working in construction, um, doing gigs, um, playing music and things like that. Um, so I have a, a wide range of, of experience. Um, and in 2012, I threw hiked the Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine. So that's a little bit about me. Nice, nice. Um, I love hearing that about you. Give us, give people a little quick background. So, why did you go into public office? What was something that what motivated you to be coming public office? Comes in. Who wants to be scrutinized? Who wants to deal with the day to day issues of you know everybody? You can't make everybody happy. So, what like who inspired you? Why did you want to go in something like this? Um, you know, when I first was running for office, I was at a family party and one of my cousin's friends was there and he's a speechwriter uh, and communications guy for NAACP. And he said to me, um, you know, why do you want to be the person that's out there in the spotlight? Why do you want to be the person out there when there's plenty of good opportunity to be behind the scenes, helping make things happen and you can still live your life, you know, in ways that people are going to scrutinize. It's just never really been a concern for me. I guess for me as someone from a background in the arts and um, performing and whose livelihood in that respect depends significantly on putting yourself in front of people. I've never really been shy about, uh, you know, the social uh, aspect of work and um, putting yourself out there in front of people, you know, in a really exposed and kind of vulnerable manner like you, like you have when you're in the arts. It's really, you know, mainly my family and friends and people in that arts community that are the real inspiration, that are the folks that, um, you know, they, they know that Baltimore's great, but they're not ignorant of its challenges, that we know that it could be better. And for me, what's really inspiring is seeing all of them just living their lives, friends, family, the arts community, you know, people doing work that's unrelated to public policy and doing it really well. You know, I got friends that are much better musicians than I ever was. I would rather them be musicians and me be something else that I can be even better at. You know, but, but everybody, chefs, social workers, laborers, construction workers, mothers, Everybody's got a job and when they're doing it really well and when they've got their role and they're really embracing it, it's inspiring. And that to me is, is an inspiration to do good public service. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And now we're going to switch, we're going to switch over a little bit. Um, <clears throat> a lot of these questions that I'm, will be asking today comes directly from your district. I want to give a quick shout out to Northeast, Northeast Baltimore social media account. Um, this person runs the Instagram Facebook, Twitter account, and I want to give them a shout out for, you know, putting this questionnaire out online for these questions to be asked. Okay. And some other questions are from other constituents in the area. Okay. Yeah. You've been called many different names, but why is the transportation so important to you? Look, transportation is one of the fundamental elements of livability. Um, in cities and in, in general. And it's fundamental to whether people have or lack access and access to opportunity and how well our co community uh, uh, bonds between where we live and where we work and where we have our needs met uh, and where we enjoy spending our time outside of our home. It's a, it's a direct correlation to quality of life. It's 
uh, it's a direct correlation to whether or not people in poverty have the opportunity to rise out of poverty over the trajectory of their lives. In certain ways, it's a better corollary of that than even education is. So it's really fundamentally important. And but but beside like the value and the policy uh, area around it, there's also kind of a pragmatic approach to why I personally became uh, engrossed in transportation work. And that's just come straight from my district and from the experience of people in Baltimore City. Uh, when I first decided to run for office and just before that, uh, I saw that there were a lot of people talking about the replacement of the Harford Road Bridge and that there were people talking about um, shortcomings they saw in the design. And there was community discussion again and again and again. And the Department of Transportation didn't seem to be listening to anybody. And what these people were talking about was that the projected design for the bridge was not going to meet the needs of all users. And the design was not going to produce the best overall outcome for people and for the surrounding communities. And for the Department of Transportation to not hear that really struck a chord with the people I know who say in general that it doesn't seem like Baltimore City is listening. And so that really opened me up to wanting to talk about transportation more. That and then um, getting with people who are talking about how are we going to do better by kids in schools in Baltimore City. One of the major challenges and major expenses that city schools has faced over the years is how we just get kids to the building, how we provide transportation access and opportunity. We have 40% of city school students missing more than a month of school each year. And, um, and, and, and a huge, huge factor in that is just whether or not we can get the kids to the building uh, by transportation in the first place. And for me, again, that, that became a matter of, it, it's a matter of um, you know, a, an opportunity that you can't get to might as well not even exist. And, um, and so to me, that's, that's, really, that's really an important way of looking at what transportation is for people. The, but the, the really the most practical aspect of this is that it's been an overlooked policy area in Baltimore City for basically the last 80 years. And I already knew that there was a huge constituency of people throughout the city and leadership in city government and in the city council on issues like housing. So I knew that I could rely on other people to carry the torch on that. And similarly, um, you know, I knew that there were already leaders on jobs and wages. I know that there are already leaders on, um, on education. I know that there are leaders on a lot of different subjects, but I didn't see anybody leading in the area of transportation from the city council or people who were coming into the city council. And so I felt it was a duty for somebody to pick this up because it is just so important and fundamental to our outcomes as a city and as individuals. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so you're perceived that you're perceived by most that you hate cars. Why is that? Um, I don't hate cars. My wife and I are a single car household and we use a car for the trips where it's necessary, um, but we try to get around other ways and we're successful in getting away or, uh, get around other ways. 
um, by making the effort to do that. My policy viewpoint about cars and driving comes from asking the question, does our transportation serve the most vulnerable? Unfortunately, when you ask that question, the inescapable conclusion is that we need to be doing more for transit and for vulnerable road users like pedestrians or people using mobility devices. For a lot of people, when someone recognizes that reality, it sounds to them like hating cars, which just goes to show how badly warped our discourse about transportation has become. Okay. What trials and tribulations have you ran into during your first tenure of uh, being a councilman? Um, this is a really good question. The toughest part about being a city councilman, one of the toughest parts, is managing people's expectations. On the city council, you basically we have like one area of statutory authority. There's one thing that we are empowered by law to do, and that's legislate. We are the legislative branch of the city government. Everything else that council members do is just based on relationships with agencies, with state legislators, with um, corporate partners, or, you know, I don't even like that phrase, with um, anchor institutions, with nonprofits, with people in community. And sometimes, sometimes residents tend to see their council member as like the mayor of their district, but that's just really not the case. We're the legislative branch of city government. And along the way, we try to use our relationships uh, to leverage good for people outside of even our legislative powers. So what, so what's the, so would that be the biggest trial and tribulations you've gotten since you've been in office? Yeah, I feel like that's, I mean, that's the day to day. Um, That's the work that, that, uh, that needs to be done is the legislative work and leveraging those relationships for good. And, you know, it's just the, the work never stops. And so, you know, the trials and tribulations, that's not, um, that's not, some flash in the pan of hot news today or this week. That stuff, it comes, it goes, it's relatively inconsequential. What really matters is the day-to-day work, not the things that are sensationalized. Um, I'm about doing this work, and that's where the real challenge is. It's in the work. How do we know you're not just another corrupt politician? (laughs) Because I... (laughs) I've been open. Well, yeah, well, let me follow. Let me follow yeah, up sure. on that, just so because you know where I'm going to go on this. Um, there was an incident that happened in our community, District Three, about a, a meth uh, a clinic that was uh, coming to our coming to the area, and a lot of people were disturbed by news that had, they had donated money to your campaign. Sure. So that's where that question comes from, and they want to know, you know, how do we know you're not just corrupt politics? Um. Because I've been open and transparent about everything and I've hid nothing for my entire first term. I try to be as clear and direct as possible about what my beliefs are and where I'm coming from. And whenever I'm questioned, uh, I engage in the discourse and I'll do it privately if that's what somebody wants and I'll do it publicly if some, that's what somebody wants. This particular incident that you're, um, you know, this particular case that you're uh, referring to, I stood in front of groups of 50 to 100 people on, I think, three separate occasions 
and directly addressed every single question that anybody had about this. And so, you know, I, I've been above board in every respect possible. All right. How do you best balance your ideas and pragmatism with each, with what takes presence in your policies? I think that that is, the answer is kind of in the question. It's about ideas and pragmatism. It's a tough question, but that, you know, it's a, it's an important one because it really is, it, it's all about the, the answer I gave a minute ago about how um, we have statutory power and then we have perceived power and influence. In my view, there's the sphere of public discourse where we talk about values and ideas. And then there's the pragmatic work of finding out what can be done, who can do it, and what it's going to take to get them to do it. Um, I've been successful at both. What the public sees is often public discourse, which is incredibly important, not just for reasons of transparency, but because it's necessary to have public discourse in order to change our collective consciousness about policy and values. But the real grind is in the 10 to 12 hours of emails and phone calls I make every day, where we find out what's possible, practical, and where the obstacles are that need to be moved and cleared. And so it's really a day-to-day -day balancing of those things that over time allows me to understand what is possible now and what might be possible in the future if we do something else right now. Um, I've, I've, you know, there are a whole bunch of different policy areas. There, there, there are all kinds of things that I would like to have happen right now, but there are other laws, you know, there are laws that I want to pass today, but that I know are going to be a problem if I don't pass a different law first. Things like that. Got, gotcha. Moving on to what's going on, a little bit, touching on a little bit what's going on right now. How do you think the city has handled quarantine? And do you think that it was enforced properly? Look, I think that Baltimore has done a good job of avoiding what some other places have been tempted to do um, at a very, you know, at a very base level, right? Things like not rushing to reopen, right? Let's not be stupid about this. Um, let's be, you know, cautious first and foremost. We don't want to rush the reopening of businesses and the loosening of social distancing policies. So I think it's, it's good that we've seen restraint there and followed health experts on what the right thing is to do. Um, but there's more that we could be done doing. We're struggling, continuing to struggle with access to testing, with food distribution. Not that we haven't done a lot with food distribution. Uh, we've got challenges with a digital divide. Um, these are not necessarily issues that are unique to Baltimore. And these are not necessarily issues that um, didn't exist already prior to the stay-at-home order and this de declaration of state of emergency and the conditions that uh, brought it about, right? Um, I'm hopeful that we're able to use this as an opportunity to see what changes we can put in place permanently. But even here in the short term, uh, I'm hopeful that we will um, do even more in certain areas around like transportation. Just last night, uh, Council President Scott and I introduced a bill 
to uh, bring about a slow streets program to create more space um, for vulnerable road users, um, for transportation and for recreation um, so that we're able to create more social distancing opportunity um, as you know, an essential part of people just being able to get around and do what they got to do. All right. Lake Montebello, who came up with the idea to close the roads? And some people think the lake is already overcrowded. Why not make this a permanent no-car zone? This was an idea brought to me by community members. And I had a number of discussions with um, Luke Brackett, the chief of the environmental police, and the Baltimore Transportation Department uh, about the feasibility of doing it. And, you know, slowly the Department of Transportation was able to work out a plan to get this done, ultimately in two phases. Uh, first, the northwest closure of that side of the lake. And then uh, after quite a bit more work, we got the southeast side of the lake closed. Um, I, you know, I would definitely uh, be open to having this. I should say I, I would love for this to remain permanent as um, you know, prohibitive of cars driving around the lake. Um, there would have to be some you know, construction work that would make that possible to continue to give access to the backside of uh, Montebello Elementary there. But I think um, that, uh, that it'd be a good thing. Why, why do we need to give this space up for cars? People are, it's, people are using the lake um, in uh, as great or greater numbers now than, ev than ever, um, despite not being able to park their car literally at the, the lake's edge. There's plenty of places to put a car. It doesn't need to be in space that's better used for people. Why did it take so long for Northwood Shopping Center on construction? Northwood Shopping Center Look, a uh, lot of moving parts, a lot of different interests, a lot of different people and cooks in the kitchen. Um, it is a property that has been sitting in the same people's hands for a very long time. And it has had the same neighborhoods around it and the same adjacent anchor institution at Morgan State, for, you know, for many decades. Um, and uh, eventually, uh, once somebody became actually interested, look, it's a privately owned property that, you know, as, as ugly as it was, as disused as it was, it was maintained just well enough that the city wasn't really able to go after it as, uh, for, you know, something for condemnation. Right. Um, so it was really, it remained in the private hands to do with it what they wanted to. Unfortunately, this is a, how a lot of properties are in Baltimore City. They're in the hands of private owners who will just sit on them for a very long time. Once this project actually had some people interested in moving it forward, there were a lot of competing interests that had to be hashed out. They got hashed out in you know private meetings and public meetings between the owner and the community the owner and morgan state one community and another the community and morgan state um other elected representatives before i took office and then not to say uh not the least you know not the least of the issues are just the basic financing things things um state federal local finance assistance um, banks lending and the partner, you know, the owners needing to find other private um, investment partners in it and, and, you know, just get a plan together and, and, and 
have something that can work. All right. How have the community stakeholders embraced working with you? So you have a lot of different um, community associations in your district, as you know. And um, how is that relationship? You know, how is that going as far as communication and dialogue in between all these communities? You know, I, I think the communication is good with me and community members. Um, I think things go well. Um, I've done a lot of work to create opportunities to directly interface uh, with constituents. You know, my whole 2016 campaign was me knocking on tens of thousands of people's doors. Uh, that's how we met in your old neighborhood. And I knocked on your door uh, just not too long ago in your new neighborhood. I'm thankful that you moved from one part of my district to another part of my district and not a part of somebody else's district. You know, so I'm created- Well, you know, to, touch, to touch on that real quick, yeah. you, you did say something very important. And I, and I want the listeners to understand. When I, I lived over in Northwood area, and moved over there in 2005. And I remember the person who was the district person before for Ryan had been there forever. Uh, as I recall, am I right about that, Kern? 21 Kern. years and was preceded by his brother who was preceded by right. their father. So it was passed down generation to generation. And where I lived in District 3, so people who know me now, they know me because I live over on the new side, well, not new side, but I live on the other side district in Walterson neighborhood. Okay. I live in Northwood and it's predominantly African-American community where I live in Northwood and in my street. And I remember you coming to knock it on doors. And I was surprised, like, who, who is this white guy knocking on our door? And it was kind of like, you know, is it, you know, and, and automatically like is he, is he, everybody in the neighborhood is like, is he the police? Just because it's a predominantly African-American neighborhood. And that's, we all know each other. We know who comes in. We know who goes out. It's a strong community association. And my neighbor, who is great, Tracy, as you know, Tracy. I spoke to her yesterday. She, she spoke very highly of you. and said, you know, Ryan's my guy. And she's introduced Ryan to everybody in the Northwood community in the area. And it was just one of those things where, you know, my neighbor who has been there for her whole entire life vouched for vouched for Ryan at that time. And he she introduced him to everybody in the neighborhood and he spoke to everybody. So I do remember that day clearly like it was yesterday. And so I just wanted to step in to just jump in and say that I remember that time. And you even came when we had a community block party and stopped by and just said, hey, you know, I'm running and you had, you know, you gave us your spiel. But I remember that because since 2005 and that was 2015 or 16 you ran, is that correct? The election was 2016, but I started knocking doors in May of 2015. There had never been any other person been in our neighborhood in that many years. So I, I just like, I know a lot of my people who listen are live on the Hartford Road Corridor, but there's more than a Hartford Road Corridor in District 3. I just want people understand that just because I think sometimes we get caught up in our own web and not thinking that's something across, the, you know, across Perrin Parkway. But go ahead. You were saying? That's right. Well, that's exactly right. Is that I represent a lot of different neighborhoods, Mayfield, Bel Air, Edison, Arcadia, Beverly Hills, Lauraville, Moravia, Walther, Walterson, Morgan Park, Hamilton Hills, Glenham, Belhar, Westfield, North Harford. All of those are just on the east side of the Morgan campus, uh, straddling the Harford Road corridor. 
over on the west side of the Morgan campus. I've got Hillen, where you lived, Stonewood, Pentwood, Winston. I got Paring Lock, and Paring Lock is split into two neighborhood associations Paring Lock Covenant, that's part of the Greater Northwood Covenant, and Paring Lock Community Association. Plus, I also have the north side of Original Northwood. And then there's other anchor institutions around, right? I got the League for People with Disabilities. I got um, not just Morgan State. I've got um, a Good Samaritan Hospital in my district. So it's, it's a broad and diverse district. I got these neighborhoods along the Harford Road corridor that are very racially and economically diverse. Um, and then I've got the neighborhoods over on the west side of Morgan campus that are like almost 100% black, middle income, um really but across the board very very strong um neighborhoods uh very high rate of ownership you know um above average education level for the city above average income level for the city below average vehicle non-access rate which means that people have access to transportation to get around to do what they need to do you know that's and and all that is the building blocks are very strong you know places to raise a family um, and one of the things that I've taken seriously is facilitating dialogue between these neighborhoods and putting myself in a position where I have to, you know, one of my roles as a communicator, you asked about uh, embracing working with community stakeholders. One of the most important aspects of my work is just being uh, often in between different neighbors. Um, in between people who hold differing viewpoints and making sure that even if one of those doesn't want to go on to social media and have their viewpoint heard, that I'm going and giving an honest um, accounting for what other people are feeling, even if it rubs somebody the wrong way, even if it doesn't jive with what they see. And, and so, again, I'm a straight dealer and I have those kind of conversations. And I think that whether you like me and my ideas um, day to day, case by case, um, most people are not going to fault me if, you know, over my willingness to have a conversation and just be open and honest about. Okay. Things. Crime has gone up in the district. How can you improve your relationship with the police department? Because it's perceived that you have no, no, you just don't care anything about. And that's what I always call perceptions reality. And that's what people perceive. And that's their reality. How can you change that perception for community, for the community? Look, I think that that's that's a fair framing of things. It's perception. Because I would, your initial question, how can you improve your relationship? I would definitely push back on that. Uh, the whole premise of that phrasing, right? I have a productive working relationship with the police department. I communicate with them almost daily. I check in with Major Preston here from the Northeast District um, about incidents that come up. People bring issues to me um, where they interface with the Northeast District and they ask me to follow up with the district. I do that. That's never a problem. Um, or where it is a challenge, I express to the district and uh, everybody, you know, here's what the challenge is that we're facing. And in general, that helps things get better. Um, beyond that, uh, though, I 
I don't control the department of uh, the, the Baltimore Police Department's budget, right? And nobody in city government can actually tell BPD what to do. They're a state agency. And in that, my role is really limited in limited to trying to shift public discourse and advocating for policy changes that I think would help make Baltimore safer. Um, a few that I've championed are things like local control of the department and giving our office of the inspector general ability to the ability, the jurisdiction, jurisdiction to investigate inside of BPD. I think that these things would be beneficial and I've been outspoken about those things. I've also been a leading voice on the council uh, investigating the department's staffing practices, which are resulting in too much overtime, which is not only expensive, but it results in uh, an officer corps that is highly uh, fatigued. Um, at the end of the day, elected officials in Baltimore have a choice to make because there are a lot of influential BPD members who want the Department of Justice consent decree thrown out. Our choice is, are we going to be bullied into submission by the FOP? So I guess that pretty much answers my second question. Because you, uh, on behalf of the majority CMP, of residents who want reform. You worry more about bicycles than crime. You want to see me worry? Uh, uh, I think you have, hey, I'm, I'm just, that. this is, I'm just repeating what I'm, that I have here, and um, so how do you promote? How do you promote families? How do you promote the families that live in to come and raise their children in District Three? <laughs> how do you promote that? How do you? If I'm a, if I'm looking outside in, I'm I'm ready to move out the city, but I, I want to start a family and I don't want to leave the city. How would you promote your district, District Three? My district mostly promotes itself, right? This part of Baltimore is relatively safe. It's got detached housing that's a good size to raise a family. We've got parks and recreational resources. Uh, we've got good schools here. Um, it's a great place to live. That's, you know, the people who live in Northeast Baltimore um, tend to be very engaged in community. And that's because they value the community here. And that is attractive. And it's um, kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? We have people that love it here. So people love it here. It's really not hard to promote um, this part of the city. What I think is really important is for us to, to use that to our advantage to push new boundaries as a city. To say there are other parts of the city that have much greater challenges where they might need to focus on um, certain things that are not going on in District 3. What can District 3 be doing to demonstrate um, what else we could be doing in other places in the city? That's, that's a big part of like, for example, what the Harford Road uh, Streetscape Project in the, Ham in the Hamilton Business District is about. Um, really demonstrating what we could be doing around the whole rest of the city in corridors like Harford Road. So, yeah, I'm, I, that, you led right into my next question. That's good. Uh, the road diet, how has it helped businesses in the area? You, you just went into the next. 
about the road diet. I mean, that was a big, um, big thing in this area. Emily Sullivan, shout out to Emily Sullivan for a nice little article at WYSR about that. Um, WYPR. WYPR. So WYPR. And she wrote a nice little um, thing about that. And what are your thoughts on that? I mean, has it worked out to where you wanted it to? I saw a lot of reaction about snowplows and things of that nature that they were worried, people worried about that. And people hate the traffic and it's gotten worse. What do you think? I, what do you think? Uh, how do you think that's going so far? And what's been a reaction from the businesses in the area? Look, it's by and large, we've had businesses um, express their support for it. And um, we, you know, people say all kinds of things, right? People say, oh, you took all the parking away. No, that's actually not true. Like, actually, there's more parking now than there was before. So let's like keep that fact based, right? Um, uh, people say it's ugly. Okay, look, it's not the prettiest thing to have a lot of flex posts. But if we didn't make any change, then nothing would change, right? That's a struggling business district there. It's a street that a lot of people, you know, like industry, in industry speak, you might refer to it as a strode, uh, a stretch of street that's all trying to function like a main street, but also trying to function like a highway, like a road. One we think of as a place for lots of things to exist, a street, and one we think of as a place for cars, a road. And those two ideas conceptually are uh, in conflict with one another. Cars are, a, in a lot of ways, a deterrent to uh, businesses wanting to locate and businesses succeeding when they're moving at high volume and high speed. Um, it's essentially the antithesis of a main street feel. Um, and so uh, what this has done is really try to promote that main street feel. And uh, what we know is that in other places where this happens, it's good for businesses, it's good for community, it's good for quality of life and property values and things that a lot of people place a lot of stake in. Um, and, uh, I, you know, so I'm, I'm really thankful that we're able to get this project done. It's the first of its type anywhere in the city and it's, I think, long overdue. The things that we hear from people like, oh, how are they gonna plow the street? You know, when I say it's long overdue, what I mean is, Things like how we're going to plow the street, they were figured out in other places long, long ago. It's not a real issue. It's just a question that gets raised again and again. And no matter how many times you answer it, somebody's going to ask, but how will they plant, plow the street? When will the Hartford Road Bridge be completed? And has construction stopped because of COVID-19? 2022. No. We pay more money per student with terrible results. Will more money help or an audit would help? Because that's a big thing. That's a big thing right now in schools. So go ahead. Yeah. Well, look. Um, I know you mentioned that you invited the other people who are uh, vying for my seat that want to take my 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 seat here on the city council. I know you invited them on, and I'll just say this one thing in comparison. I'm the only person who actually supports the Kerwin plan and the bridge to excellence, the the school the the school funding program at the state. Um, that the city would have to contribute to in order to get proper per pupil funding for Baltimore City school students. They're not being funded appropriately. They're underfunded dramatically year after year after year. And this has been the case for years. And so, um, 
you know, it's like it's like trying to 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 build a car without the fuel pump, right? When you don't have all of the necessary resources in order to make the mechanism work properly, then it's and then it cannot achieve it cannot produce the desired outcome. We want our kids and believe that our kids deserve a first-rate education and everything that goes with it in order to uh, ensure the best possible life outcomes for children raised in Baltimore City. It's just a does, fact. Does City Council have any control over the, over the budget for Baltimore City Schools? I can talk about the budget in a second. But well, we're not, we're not going to go deep into it. It's just, a, do, we, do they have any control over that? It's a nuanced question. I'm going to give you an answer on that for in, in just a second. Okay, but no I'm problem. Gonna, I just want to finish this thought about school funding. Uh, the schools have been audited repeatedly. The school system has been audited repeatedly. It gets a clean bill of health. The, 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 the line that city schools are just impossibly corrupt and wasteful is propaganda. It's not real, it's not factual. Baltimore city schools, when it comes to um, overhead costs, fall in the middle of the pack in terms of other school system uh, school uh, systems throughout the state of Maryland. We're not even in the upper uh, range of what it takes in terms of percentage-based overhead costs. In terms of comparison between other school jurisdictions throughout the country, again, there's been this propagandized um, lie about how we stack up. Governor Hogan and Fox News and others have repeated this lie, an utter lie that said that Baltimore City Public Schools were the third highest funded in the country. It's just not even close to true. The truth is that I believe the number is 2,747th. That's where we rank nationally. We're not even close to the top funded school districts in the country. When I took office in 2016, we were funding at a rate of about $15,500 per pupil annually. The state's own assessment on educational adequacy said that Baltimore City schools require 18,000, I think it's 18,500 per pupil. That meant we were funding at a rate of $3,000 too little per student throughout the whole system. At the end of the day, that stacks up to we have been underfunding between 250 and 300 million dollars every single year for the last decade and the city has actually been putting up more than its share of the total when you look at what the city is supposed to contribute and what the state is supposed to contribute based on the state's formula the state has been the one that has been shorting the city for all that time. And that's what Kerwin is about. It's not just about getting the state to put up more because the city will actually have to put up more to match the state funding, but it's the only path forward and it's the right and, tr and, and, and long debated path, path forward to fund city schools and schools across Maryland to the degree that they are required.
in terms of the city council's ability to address the budget. There's two aspects of this. One, we have no ability whatsoever to meddle in the budget. That is entirely in the hands of the school board. Where we have an ounce of say, and maybe an ounce is an overstatement, is in the city budget and how much it appropriates to the schools. But even that's a stretch when you really understand the budget process of the city. The budget is prepared at the direction of the mayor by the finance department. It is presented to the board of estimates, which is a five member board, three of whom are the mayor and two people appointed by the mayor. So the mayor effectively controls the board of estimates. If the board of estimates approves that budget proposal from the mayor, then it comes to the city council who can only cut funding in the budget. We can't move money around. And even if we cut money somewhere, in order to say, you know, create some leverage, well, you know, give us this or else we're gonna cut that thing over there to oblivion, right? Even if we do that, the mayor has a line item veto authority and we would need 12 out of 15 city council members to vote together to override such a veto. Unless you can get that level of solidarity between members of the city council, the city council has effectively no power to leverage the budget. There are two things that we're doing about that as a city council. We have, and both of these have been led by my colleague, Bill Henry, who's now running for comptroller and who I'm supporting for comptroller. One is reducing the number of votes required to override a mayoral veto from 12 out of 15 to 10 out of 15, that will be on the ballot in the November general election for voters to decide. And um, the ability to move money around in the budget. Hopefully we will have that on the ballot in November for voters to decide as well. What are the top three opportunities and challenges for the district in the next five years? I think one of the biggest challenges that the third district faces is that it doesn't exist in isolation, or I think at least it's really important to keep that in mind when we're talking about what are the challenges, what are the needs of the district. In 2016, when I first ran for office, I stood apart because I talked about the need for big public policy change to dramatically shift the way we operate as a city, to dramatically shift how we regulate operations as a city, and to, you know, to affect the big things like housing and transportation and jobs and recreational access and things like that. The third district can't get dramatically better in a city that isn't also getting better, right? It can't progress in isolation. And it's just no, it's, you know, it's no secret that Baltimore has really, really serious challenges, um, not the least of which is our homicide rate. And that affects us all everywhere in the city. And so 
addressing that through things like violence interruption programs that we know are effective in preventing homicide and violence um, is really important. It's really important that we have that stuff in places where we have pattern violence that is deeply seated for decades. Um, because if we can you know, in, in, improve those conditions everywhere in the city and where it's the worst in the city, then we're creating the opportunity and the environment in which um, places that are doing relatively well can continue to grow and do better. But in terms of things that uh, can happen directly in the third district, more businesses, jobs, and amenities, more ways to meet people's needs and desires right here where we live. These can be significantly bolstered through improvements to public space and infrastructure. Again, places like Harford Road, like the Main Street's uh, kind of changes to what is effectively a highway through our community. Another big factor there is expanding and diversifying housing types and affordability to bring more people to support, you know, to be able to bring more people to live here, to better be able to support business and job growth, while also growing the number of people who see how great the third district is. Um, it's great, so we want more people to be able to share in that high quality of life. I would say lastly, schools and recreation. Um, Northwood Elementary is being replaced. There will be some accompanying um, community and recreational improvements on those grounds as well. Um, Hamilton Elementary Middle is in need of improvements. Um, uh, other schools are doing well, others are having challenges. We have to do more on the schools in the district. Um, some of that is planned and some of that is not yet planned and some of it has been a progress, you know, work in progress for a long time. Um, again, supporting the Kerwin plan at the state is essential to this. Um, uh, but we also have other kind of standalone recreational opportunities like the North Harford Playfield. Um, just before we began this, I was looking over the capital budget for fiscal 21 for, and for the next six years. We plan capital investments on a six-year basis. Um, I've been advocating for funding for the North Harford Playfield for the last five years, uh, since even two years before uh, getting elected to the city council. Uh, when nobody else was talking about it, I was getting the Department of Recreation and Parks and community members into a meeting to, uh, to say, what are we going to do about this? And it's not like it's around the corner from me. It's at the farthest end of my district from me. Um, but I started advocating for that two years before I took office. And I'm really proud that last year, finally, we got a million dollars programmed for it. And next year, we have another 2.35 million program, uh, 1.35 program for it. So at the end of the day, we've got $2.35 million programmed uh, to make improvements to the North Harford Playfield site. Um, and I just want to see more of that. Okay. So how, would we, how, would, how will you work to provide stable funding for Baltimore Affordable Housing Trust Fund? We have stable funding for uh, the Affordable Housing Trust Fund now through the recreation and transfer tax. We passed a bill in the city council that increased the recreation and transfer tax on properties being sold that are valued at over a million dollars or transfer of properties 
that over or over a million dollars in that um, that sale. Um, that is uh, that was projected to put I think 11 million into the Affordable Housing Trust Fund every year. I think it's underperforming a little bit. I think it's somewhere like 10 and a half, 11 million is actually coming in there. But we've got stable funding there. I'd like to see more coming in there. I'd like to see us putting about 20 million a year into that. Um, but now that we've got some funding, it's time to start using some of that. And I'm, a, I'm preparing now to introduce a bill that would be essentially the first use of that affordable housing money uh, for a local-based voucher program. We have an agreement um, with the affordable housing advocates and the director, of the, or the com Commissioner Braverman um, from the housing department to allocate a million and a half dollars a year to a local housing voucher program for very low income residents. And so I'm crafting that bill right now and I'm gonna be very proud to introduce that bill. Uh, my estimate is that that'll help house about 1100 uh, households annually. Um, and that is, that is really significant in a city where we have 3000 people living on the street every night. All right. So now we're gonna to switch topics a little bit. I know we're in, in uncharted waters with society and business right now. Uh, what are you hearing from businesses in the, your district right now as far as um, they're not opening right now? Have they reached out to you about struggles they're going through? What are you hearing? Have you spoken to them and reassured them? Uh, just because there are a lot of people who own businesses that live in the same district also. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, the fact that we have so many people who live in the third district and run businesses in the district, um, whether they're working from home or whether they're working, uh, whether they have a shop brick and mortar on Harford Road, um, particularly we have a lot of restaurant um, owners who live in the community. Um, that makes this a particularly scary time, right? We have a lot of people who, if their businesses falter, then their household falters. And that's... Um, that's that's scary, and um, this is an unprecedented time, you know, in our in our lifetimes. Um, and we're significantly relying on state and federal resources to um, help bolster people, help bolster businesses. And um, you know, I think that we that our federal partners could be doing more. Um, and I think that the state could be doing more. Um, and the city is, you know, really reliant on them um, and is really limited in its ability to do, in a lot of ways, much more than just keeping the lights on uh, for basic city services. The city is getting, being hit really hard. Uh, we're projecting a $40 million budget shortfall for the coming fiscal year. But, and, but, but that, you know, that's not any consolation to the business owners uh, in my district. You know, I'm doing what I can to, uh, to make sure that they are aware of um, all of the available resources. Um, the city has, you know, it's small, even by comparison to some of the other jurisdictions in the state, but we have a $5 million local small business program that's being administered by the Baltimore Development Corporation. Everything that there is to know about that program is available online at, uh, what is it, baltimoretogether.com. But these businesses really need our support. 
it's really important that we all shop local to the greatest extent possible. And um, I'm really thankful to third district resident Robert Preston for creating the website nebaltimore.biz to help in that effort to help people. So know, um, this is um, one of my questions because uh, I had our community a lot of people comment their on state a website of that I was looking at. In terms of and, you know, um, they're open. In Tampa, pickup, Florida, right now, he works in it. They have things like the that. mayor has closed off, not closed off the street for restaurants uh, because of social distancing. I know Harper Road is sometimes called a highway, <laughs> uh, but is there a possibility that we could make something happen for those restaurants where they could have, you know, I know we have one lane, but maybe take away the parking just for a certain time of night for these restaurants because a lot of these restaurants are pretty small in this area. So that, that, that cap, the capability of the capacity is not going to be the same. So is that something that you and the city, other city council people are maybe are thinking about and look at that model in Tampa? I don't know if you know about that, but this is a model they're doing that. We're making sure that, Hey, let's make sure yeah. we get outdoor eating and we're going into the summertime. Is that something you guys can think about? Yeah, you know, earlier you asked how I think the city is doing in response to COVID-19. And I say in general, I think we're doing all right. But this is one, this is specifically the area where I said we could be doing a lot better. I wrote a letter and it was supported by a majority of the city council that we issued to the mayor several weeks ago, asking them to do, you know, essentially this kind of thing which is to just make a decision to create, to close some lanes of traffic to cars. Um, and those, you know, it doesn't, you know, where you have the northbound side of Hartford Road is a good example. You have two northbound lanes on a street that only has one southbound lane. Seems to me like the northbound has a lane to spare. If you just moved the cars away from the curb 10 feet, they could still park there and there'd still be a northbound travel lane, and you could use that curb space where cars were parked before for restaurant seating or for people walking for social distancing. We're asking people to distance at six feet on a sidewalk that at times is only three feet wide. You know, it's really a no-brainer to give more space to people. Um, and just last night, because we haven't seen this happen from the administration, Council President Scott and I introduced a bill calling on them to do just this. Um, that, and I should say that I did just mention a minute ago, BaltimoreTogether.com, which is the website for the city's program for, um, for small business support. One of the things in that program is specifically for this purpose. I, in a lot of ways, I don't really understand why it requires funding at all, for, you know, as a programmatic uh, solution, when all that needs to happen is for the Department of Transportation to come out and say, we're moving these cars away from the curb by 10 feet. And that's all there is to it. You don't need funding to make that happen from a programmatic standpoint. This is something that we could and should be doing right now. And it's something that I've been advocating for for more than a month. All right. So now I, you went through all the hard questions, okay? That I know I see you sweating over there. Oh, man, I'm and, worked uh, up. 
Um, we're going to do rapid fire. This is my fun part. Rapid fire here. Okay. Okay. We're going to do rapid fire. Um, what inspires you every day? My wife. I like to cook for your favorite author, Douglas Adams, your favorite musician, deer hoof, best crab kick in Baltimore, two syllables, co code, best brunch in Baltimore, silver queen, flats or drums, drums, bruh. <laughs> Favorite city to visit? This time last year, I was in Tokyo, and I can't wait to go back. Favorite local beer? Oh, you don't. Sorry, you don't drink. But what's the popular? Hold up. But what's the, don't you don't drink. drink? Go ahead. I don't drink, but I got a lot of love for the guys at Waverly Brewing. Okay. All right. All right. What's the best advice you've ever received? Listen, if you could look at your younger self, what would you what would you say about what would your younger self say about you now? What would my younger self, uh, you should have read more books. All right. So last question, what's your contact info and how can, if, if constituents want to come and see you, they want to talk to you. Um, maybe they're not on Facebook. Maybe they're not on Twitter. Cause I think Twitter is just, that's a whole different story, but they're not on social media. They're, they're not on social media. What's the way you know, that they can contact you? Um, I can always be reached by phone at 667-217-6857. If you got a computer, you can email me, ryan at electryandorsey.com. And if you want to meet face-to-face right now, virtually, look, normally under normal circumstances, I have regular office hours at Function Coworking Community at 4709 Harford Road. Um, But right now I'm doing just nine to five, Monday through Friday, office hours virtually. Uh, online and anybody who wants to, anybody that can get onto a computer can set up a meeting with me by simply going to calend.ly slash Ryan Dorsey or calendly.com slash Ryan Dorsey. And anybody who wants to can just go there and sign up for a time to meet with me. I don't even have to approve it. You just got to send the request and it's done. Councilman Dorsey, you're off the hot seat. Yo. If you want to find me, <laughs> check me out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at elect Ryan Dorsey. Thank you. Thank you, Councilman Dorsey, for coming and stepping into the No Picks of Dark podcast. Thanks for having me, Aaron. I appreciate it, man. All right, folks. And we're out. Peace, love, and happiness. <laughs> <laughs>